break away from anthropocentrism and the arrogance of anthropocentrism and a break away from the mechanical philosophy that is a hundred years out of date and it's being pushed in every sphere of life including in the way we think of our bodies. If we have to build beyond COVID, we have to realize, A, where are these new infectious diseases coming from? They're coming from an industrial agriculture system of forest invasions into the Amazon, into the Indonesian forest for palm oil, for soya oil, for animal feed. And if we look at the COVID experience, China talked about its togetherness that saw us through. It's care that saw us through. Those are the true economies. The economy of care and the economy of solidarity. Including solidarity with the earth, including solidarity with other humans. And, and I think the refugee crisis will be the test in Europe. Because more people are being made refugees by actions of the rich. And yet there's this new apartheid being created. For me, the rebuilding means rebuilding our relationships. It means regenerating our dependence on the soil, on the biodiversity, on the trees, on the forests, on the waters. And health is a relationship. Health is not a product we buy. Sickness allows for purchase of sickness therapies. But health is a process we live. And I want to take two minutes because the young people really need to get involved in a movement for taking care of the health of the earth and taking care of themselves. Because the young people are the ones who are being made the quickest victims of fast food, junk food. And I'll just run through quickly. Diabetes, 7.7 .7 crore people in India lack treatment every year kidney diseases, liver cirrhosis, infertility, birth defects, heart-related diseases, autism, cancer, related to toxics and the food we eat. Food is not a commodity, it is the currency of life. It needs more respect and it begins with soil. And therefore, you know, to the people who are here, Punjab has shown the way on how to have respect for food. Punjab has shown the way through its gurus and its teaching and the Guru Granth Sahib on how to grow food in abundance and share it in abundance through the amazing sharing culture of Seva. That needs to become, that is what Chandigarh can give to the world. A culture of caring and a culture of sharing. So thank you Punjab personally for my life's journey and politically and for India for the food you have given and finally to the world for the culture of service and oneness. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you. So I'm the guy who follows Dr. Shiva. <laughs> Good luck on me. Uh, I, I wanted to start also by thinking about Punjab and uh, it's my third time here and Punjab on both sides of the partition line have been in my mind a lot and uh, especially those last two years with a very inspi inspiring victorious campaign of the Punjabi farmers that we had a, a little bit of solidarity with in, uh, in, in Paris with a little bit of the Punjabi diaspora there uh, and, um, and so it's really a, a big joy and honor to be, to be back here.
Um, what I think what we all learned uh, through those past uh, four and those two years has been that however horrible were already the structural inequalities that surround us, they became even more, they, they became even stronger in terms of wealth, of course, I mean, Dr. Shiva just talked about it and how life are quite literally put a price on and, and how much does it cost to actually get your life treated or, or not, depending on the healthcare infrastructure you're surrounded with, but I don't think there is a perfect healthcare infrastructure anywhere in the world, so we will have to do some work on that. Personally, the, um, the sort of structural violence conditions that, have, that I'm particularly looking at are colonial ones, and we've seen how not only indigenous uh, fauna has been incredibly devastated, but also indigenous peoples themselves uh, in the Americas, in Australia, in Palestine, in Kashmir, in many many other places. So that's something that we that we're trying to work with, uh, trying to, to be in solidarity with the struggles coming from all those places at the office, while listening to pandemic music quite often, I should say. Um, and so perhaps the little the little contribution I may I might be able to make here, uh, I, I usually call this like putting putting an object on the table, like the little object on the table comes from the idea of spatial politics, because I'm a trained architect myself, so I, I sort of relate to the world through space, which is neither a better nor a worse relationship to the world than any other. Um, but so trying to see how architecture, the built environment, geography, territory, but also even clothing or objects are enforcing in 99% of cases, uh, enforcing like structures of violence, and how what is this little one percent left we have to perhaps resist it is something that I'm that I'm always trying to look at. And you know, it's it's very particular for an architect to speak like in uh, uh, to speak in to speak in Chaligarh under the auspices of <laughs> the open end, which for me is a little bit scarier than the way like I feel it's going to fall on us actually. <laughs> but uh, I've been told by the French institutes that if I criticize Le Corbusier, I should insist that he, he was born Swiss and not French, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, Chanigar is a perfect example, I think, of how things are more complex when it comes to the built environment, and although it's a, it's a city that I love in many ways, it's also this, this frame, the, the sort of hyper-rationalization of bodies considered as fluxes, like it's true that everything is fluid, but the way Corbusier understands fluidity, sometimes it's a little bit scary as well. And um, and uh, the, the one the one place I want to sort of pay homage to, which is a place I got to revisit today, after eight years, is uh, Burel Village in Sector 45, which I think is an incredible, an amazing example of resistance to this hyper-rationalized frame. And of course it tells also the, the, the the sort of it sort of dismantled a little bit the mythology. Sorry, I'm, I keep looking here. I'm not inclusive here. Uh, um, how the mythology of this city built out of nowhere, out of nothing, when actually there was like, of course, like a lot of farmland and farmers and uh, an, an entire agriculture soil, and how those uh, villages ended up like being completely surrounded by the Corbusian frame. 
but how they still manage to exist, to resist in their own very particular urban, hospitable way, I think to me is very inspiring and says a lot about, and architects should get lessons from this as well in being perhaps humble. Thank you. So I think um, the three speakers here, there is a lot of uh, commonality. I think all of your works in their own ways, all of your thoughts are um, subverting the idea of a mechanical grid. Uh, in your case, on the mind. Uh, in your case, on the ecology. In your case, well, on the city, well, literally, in terms of planning. Um, could we talk a bit about um, the idea of development and how usually I think when we look around, it is perceived as a linear sort of a trajectory, right? And I think all of your works, your thoughts are unpacking that a bit, uh, well, bit by bit. Would you like to talk about that, touch upon that? So, um, we have like 300 years of mechanical thought, okay? But philosophy, tell us that ancient Indian philosophy and in general good philosophy or philosophy of experience tell us that the body is not a mechanism, the mind is not a mechanism, the universe is not a mechanism. But we are insisting as a civilization since Descartes, since Galileo, since Newton, that this universe is a mechanism. So we can explode, you can investigate, we can, we can get into the mechanism to get our objectives, whatever they are, okay? So Galileo has this idea, Descartes first has this idea of the order of the mind is equal to the order of the real. Then Galilei said that nature speaks the language of mathematics and Newton tell us about a mechanical universe. Then we have some philosophers in our European tradition, like William James, like Whitehead, like Niels Bohr, that tell us that nature doesn't speak in mathematical language. Nature speaks in the language we are asking. So if we, we, we can mathematicize nature, and if we do so, nature will respond in a mathematical language. But we can ask nature in a poetical language, and she would reply poetically. So this is the main idea of Niels Bohr, is the main idea of quantum mechanics, the philosophical idea of quantum mechanics. So, if we really want to rebuild together our way of staying in this planet, we have to change the paradigm. The mechanical paradigm ends up in the Manhattan Project and ends up, ends up in the development today of biological weapons. So if we follow thinking that way, this would be the collapse of our civilization. 
So this mechanical thought has to be changed, and I think this is the only way, the only realistic way of rebuilding together. Thank you. You know, I've never seen any ecosystem in lines. The nature of ecosystems is diversity. It could be a forest ecosystem, it could be a pasture, or it could be agriculture systems based on nature, the kind of agriculture India has had. And Albert Howard, who's called the father of modern agriculture and organic agriculture, was sent to India by the British in 1905. And he says, I've been sent to improve Indian agriculture, but they do it so much better than what we do in England. I can improve British agriculture. And he wrote a book called The Agricultural Testament. And he identified two principles of agriculture, including Punjab agriculture before 1966, before the monocultures of the Green Revolution. Diversity and giving back. The open hand means giving. The grabbing hand is like that, just taking and never giving. Souls will get desertified. Farmers will be impoverished. They will be driven to suicide. You know, Batinda is a very big pocket of farmer suicides. As is the region for cancer. And the cancer train goes from there. So nature works in diversity and in cycles. And if we were to learn that from nature, diversity in cycles, we will not have this love affair with uniformity and monocultures, with linearity and imposition of grids. You know, row crops. Row crops are the ecologically most inefficient way of harvesting for the sun's energy for photosynthesis. We've done a lot of productivity analysis on this in Navdanya. We can feed two times India's population by protecting biodiversity and harvesting the sun much more effectively and efficiently. And because of your contribution, I want to say, you know, there's something very beautiful that in relativity, Einstein said space and time is one continuum. It's not divisible. In Indian philosophy, we always talk of Vesh and Kal as one integral, not separate. And the four-dimensional like process trillions. is the way nature's evolutionary processes work. Nature's becoming is constantly at work. And something you, we all should work on further is in India, space is the fifth element. We don't talk of only four material elements because we think of relationships. And space is where relationships are made. So space is the fifth element. And that's why so much attention is paid in India to space and the way it creates the material world. So I'm the guy who speaks after Dr. Shiva. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, I mean, I think when, when we think of development, of course, architecture uh, very much intervene within it. But I think sometimes a little bit too um, immediately as, as a sort of as a tool of development and as some things that would take us away from nature and this kind of thing and I think that would be a very simplistic uh, way of reading indeed a, a five dimensional or five elemental and four dimensional reality 
Um, but what I what I try to show, especially if I if I talk to, I don't teach, but if, if I, I do have the chance and honor to speak to many architecture students, and what I what I usually try to tell them is that every time you trace a line on a piece of paper, this becomes a, a scheme in which bodies are organizing space, and so this is no not politically innocent in any possible way. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just means it's very, it's it's a very tremendous gesture, and it should be taken very seriously and with great humility, as I as I mentioned earlier, because it's the, the consequences are really really big, and you know it, it it comes with its complexity. Of course, you know we hopefully here we all live in in a house of, of sort or an apartment but and so we have walls that surround us and and they somehow we think of them as protecting us protecting us against what against whom is is always an important question also uh, what, what does that mean that the walls that surround us are excluding everybody but ourselves in that particular space um, and um, and what does that mean when other walls walls of prisons walls of partitions walls of I mean, uh, uh, the walls that embody and, and reinforce an even bigger uh, political violence. And so I think we should always have that in mind, at least for those of us who like practice architecture of some sort and trace those lines on papers that don't seem that much like that, but that have tremendous uh, consequences on, on bodies. And of course, bodies are never equal in the way they receive this violence, because this violence always reinforces dominant orders. We talked about patriarchy and, and uh, queer phobia just before. That's that's part of them. Colonialism is another, capitalism another. So what is what can we do with that once we once we realize this this reality is a very is a very hard question, but I think it's because it is very hard that we need to be very much engaged with it. what you said so when we draw lines who are we including and who are we leaving out right that's what you're talking about you yeah. uh, yes please yeah. I think drawing lines and maps is not just about inclusion and exclusion it's also an hierarchical process because the colonizers drew lines on paper and decided which part of Africa would belong to them and which part wouldn't which part of the Middle East would belong to where? I mean, you know, all the division of, of the oil deposits. But the, when the British came to India, I remember one of the Britishers said, when we colonized India, we came with a sword in one hand and a yardstick in the other, making maps to take away your rights. And that's where I think what Juan was saying about measurement becoming an extractive process and saying you with rights don't matter. And this becomes particularly true now where entire city landscapes are being rewritten by the JCB. You know, the JCB is everywhere. Mr. Boris Johnson sat in a JCB on the day the JCB was running in Delhi. And you know, the old yardstick is now being run by the JCB. So the map then becomes a way of taking away your story 
your belonging, your rootedness in place. And I think this will be a very big issue unless we can redefine issues related to the commons, related to undoing the privatization of the commons and enclosures of the commons, and definitely preventing the new map making, including the new, you know, living systems are complex self-organized systems. They are not lines of genome. The genome tells you nothing about what is in the self-organized capacity of that life. But if you know what that life is, you can claim that this part of the genome tells you. Or the mapping, our data mapping, you know, that's a new drawing of lines by algorithms. Perhaps something I, I just wanted to add also is that I, I talked here about building architecture, but I think the, the sort of the demolition of architecture is also absolutely crucial in also how it comes to reinforce structures of violence and you know i mean we all followed in the past, uh, the the past two weeks this destruction of Muslim the biggest in Delhi, for example but just today i mean you might not see my shoes they're not they're not quite very nice they're very dusty but awesome, uh, on my shoes whoa, you have whoa. like the dust of the the the, the homes of uh, colony four in which i was this uh, this afternoon just in uh, industrial area number one uh, where decades old uh, housing were destroyed and I met some of the people who were standing on the ruins of their homes. So I think it's also very crucial to see architecture as being sometimes also the, and of course by architecture I mean the people who live in it, uh, were also the target of, um, of, 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 of destruction. And I think the way the bulldozers have been evolved as a symbol in this country is very, very um, concerning and makes me think a lot about what I what I know quite well in the context of Palestine, for example. So I would, I would put that there. And who are our cities designed for, and who are left out of our cities? So thank you so much for starting that conversation. I believe we will continue now with the Q and A after a short break. But I think we're just getting started. So I would request uh, everyone to maybe note down their questions. We will start taking them after five minutes. Let's take a short break. Please get your water. And I would request the other panelists to join us as well. Thank you.